The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Paul Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker, I'm seeing that a dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Christian Picciolini. Christian is a former neo-Nazi skinhead who left the movement over a decade ago and has since devoted his life to break the hate. After helping people disengage from extreme right groups in the US, he founded the Free Radicals Project a global disengagement platform that aids individuals and their families or communities in exiting hateful and violence-based radicalization through non-aggressive, community-led methods of individual resilience building, reconnection, cross-cultural immersion, and making amends. In addition to being an acclaimed author and public speaker, Christian is also an Emmy Award-winning producer of documentaries. Last year, he did a three-part special report series entitled Breaking Hate for MSNBC. Previously, he published White American Youth, My Descent into America's Most Violent Hate Movement, and How I Got Out. And this year, he published Breaking Hate, Confronting the New Culture of Extremism. Welcome to the podcast, Christian. Thanks, Kath. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we turn our conversation to the extreme right in the U.S., I have some introductory questions. First, what was the first sports team you ever supported? <laughs> you get right to it. Uh, Juventus, uh, an Italian soccer team. I should probably say the Italian national soccer team was probably my first favorite sports team. But if I were to pick a, a club team uh, of any sport, it would, it would be Juventus. And what is your favorite political song? Oh, man. The Clash is my favorite band. It's always been my favorite band. That was my deep, dark secret in the white power movement. Nobody <laughs> knew that even before that. Uh, but it's too hard to pick a Clash song. So I'm going to go with actually a Bob Dylan song. The times they are changing. A classic for sure. And finally, what's your favorite political book? This is an easy one. I would say A True Believer uh, by Eric Hoffer, I think is, even though it's a book from the 50s written by a man who was, uh, you know, not a classically trained uh, extremism expert. He was a longshoreman. Uh, it is probably still, I think, today the most re- relevant book to understand what's happening in the world. Perfect. So perhaps you can start with giving the listeners a quick overview of your life in the U.S. far right. At what age did you enter? What kind of activism were you involved in? I was recruited into the American neo-Nazi skin movement in 1987 uh, when I was uh, barely 14 years old and um, was a member of of that, uh, which eventually became the Hammerskin Nation until about 1996 when I was 23. So I've been out of the movement uh, almost 25 years now. But what people, uh, most people don't know is that in America, the the white power skinhead movement started in Chicago in that alley where I was recruited. And the group that I was a part of was America's first kind of organized white power skinhead group. And you say you were recruited. How did that work? Well, it's kind of a classic story that I tell a lot. Uh, You know, I was standing in an alley. I was kind of this, um, you know, delinquent kid who felt marginalized. I came from, you know, good Italian and uh, American family 
who'd uh, emigrated in the mid 60s, but felt very abandoned by them because they were working seven days a week, mm-hmm. 16 hours a day. And, and uh, you know, I'd kind of been hanging around in alleys doing bad things. And um, that summer between uh, my eighth grade and freshman year, a man came up to me uh, and I was smoking a joint in the alley. And he came up to me and he pulled a joint from my mouth and he looked me in the eyes and he said, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile. Um, I didn't know what communist Jew or even what, what the word docile meant, to be honest. Uh, it turned out that that guy who was, uh, I think, 26 years old at the time was a man by the name of Clark Martell, uh, who is uh, you know, pretty well known as being kind of the first leader of American white power skinheads. And he recruited me that day. He saw in me kind of this isolated, lonely kid who was idealistic and looking to change the world and kind of a punk rock kid at that point uh, and um, knew how to build me in. Right. And you already mentioned it and you actually make that explicit in your first book where you argue that music played an important role in the extreme right and in your extreme right activism. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I mean, it was really the first thing that uh, attracted me to it because, I mean, certainly the ideology was foreign to me. I didn't understand it. It, it wasn't part of my DNA of how I was raised or, uh, or anything like that. So you know, that was really the least attractive thing to me. The music, however, and the fashion that went uh, around the music was really attractive. It spoke, you know, it was this kind of raucous, the punk politicized music that spoke to the best of its listeners, but the worst of the listeners' enemies. So it was, you know, propaganda. It was, um, spoke to kind of disenfranchised or, or disaffected youth. And, and I was, you know, certainly in that camp of feeling disaffected. And it empowered me because, you know, not only was it, you know, loud and angry and, and a way to kind of express my angst, it was education. It was a way to kind of inform me into that ideology. And the more that I got into that, the more I felt that that empowered me. So music was kind of like a drug. And later you also started playing in a band, right? Yeah, kind of uh, pretty soon after that. So around 1989 and early 1990 was when I started my first white power band, uh, which was called White American Youth. That's the same as the title of my memoir. And, you know, there were really no American bands at that playing that kind of music. There were a few bands like Bound for Glory. It started, you know, uh, maybe mm-hmm. a year before, six months before. There were kind of bands that were on the fringe of the skinhead culture that could have been seen as part of the racist or RAC scene, uh, the Rock Against Communism scene, like arresting officers. But it was the British bands that really inspired me, bands like Screwdriver and Brutal Attack and and No Remorse that had started, you know, roughly No Remorse and Brutal Attack, you know, in the late mid to late 80s. So it was for a kid who felt pretty invisible uh, until he was recruited. And then, you know, at at 16 years old, picked up a microphone and started singing for, you know, a band, especially a band that at that point, you know, there was no roadmap for a white power band in America. It was kind of like you were doing your thing and standing out because of it, uh, it was pretty empowering. You already noted the influence of the British scene. In what way was the U.S. neo-Nazi skinhead scene a copy, and in what way did it deviate from the British model? 
it was almost a direct carbon copy of what was happening there. But we also had influence from what was happening in, Amer in the, the extreme right, you know, from groups like the Klan or the American Nazi Party. Um, and, you know, it was the mid-80s were really the first time when I got involved in 87 was really the first time when those older generations of American neo-Nazis or white supremacists were starting to embrace the youth aspect of it. And the American skinhead was really the first kind of iteration of what we saw in Charlottesville in, in, in 2017, although it looked very, very different. But yeah, you know, I think it was at first a direct copy uh, because we didn't have that influence. You know, it obviously had been happening in, in the UK for years before, uh, you know, it was happening in the United States. But then it started to get politicized around the mid 80s. And that's when groups started to form like the Chicago area skinheads, which was which was what I was recruited into. Right. And you're working with far right today and you, you're observing them as well. Of course, we're living in a very different time. When you were active in the extreme right, there was no anonymity, but there was also not easily a national profile. Most leaders were at best regionally notorious. But now we have internet where people can get global fame overnight, but you can also be anonymously very active. How do you see the change in, in extreme right activism over the last decades? Having been in the movement in a time pre-internet, you had to be in direct contact with somebody who could recruit you, right? You had to be standing in an alley, you had to be, you know, invited to a meeting, you had to be handed a leaflet or a CD or a CD or a music cassette at that point. <laughs> It was a high-touch situation, whereas now the internet really has made it kind of a 24-hour all-you-can-eat hate buffet if you want. You know, it's not hard to stumble on far-right propaganda or content that's made to, to radicalize somebody. We, we look at it almost every day. I mean, some of it's so innocuous that we don't even know that it is what it is. You know, the internet has kind of become the digital alley that I was standing in where any disaffected, any kind of lonely young kid, and there are millions and millions of them spending a lot of time online versus the real world that are getting access to uh, radical ideologies and sucking them in. Because I'm a very firm believer that nobody is searching for the ideology when they find it that they're searching for three other really important things, and that's a sense of identity, community, and purpose. And they find them in these movements, and they're detoured to those three things by what I call potholes in their life. Potholes are trauma, uncertainty, abuse. Mental health is a pothole that keeps us too detached from reality. And on the fringes by those potholes, there are people looking for uh, you know, vulnerable folks who are, are searching for identity, community, and purpose. And these ideologies, these movements are very, very good at, at filling those voids in a very superficial way. Right. And while I can imagine that like hurdles to get into the movement were much bigger at that time, because as you said, you had to go into the alley, relatively scary person would come up to you and you were directly known to them, but to other people as well. And you don't have that anymore. But that also probably means that the hurdles to get out were also much higher than today, particularly if you're anonymously involved in extreme right online activity. So why did you leave the extreme right? And do you feel that your story was quite specific to you? Or is it in line with a more common trajectory that you see? 
Well, you know, I, my story was both specific to me, but also very common with the people that I've worked with to help disengage, because that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years or so, is helping people disengage from these movements. It was harder to get in, but it could have been just as easy for me to go into some other type of extremism, whether that's drug abuse, which is a self-extremism, or suicide, or crime, or, you know, a gang. But it was very difficult to get out because really nobody had tried to do that before. There was no mechanism, person even, to be that bridge. Today, while it's much, much easier to get in, to stumble in it, it's still just as hard to get out. And I think because the internet kind of amplifies things and it makes anonymity feel like a real thing when it, and, you know, it really doesn't exist, people are being outed all the time. Yeah. But the truth is, is there still aren't very many mechanisms for people to disengage. And now it's, they're trying to disengage into a world that is very hostile towards them because the internet has kind of put a magnifying glass on it. So it's difficult. It's not impossible. And I do it all the time. I've helped hundreds of people uh, disengage. And the internet helps and it hurts. You know, the challenges still exist. It's about human resilience and us understanding we have to learn to see the child and not the monster in people, regardless of whether they're 16 or 60 that it's still those same types of things, I think, that are broken within people that need to be repaired to bring them back. Right. And before we will go on with that, I still want to know a little bit more about what changed. Was it personal? Did you get disillusioned by the ideology? One of the things that you see, particularly with far-right leaders or people who were more prominent in the organization, that they often leave because they get disappointed in the movement. Not only a personal change, which also plays a role, but they also kind of see, for example, corruption around them or people just not really actually living according to their creed. I mean, the American History X kind of story. What was it with you? First of all, these movements are full of people with egos and very low self-esteem. So of course, there's always that sort of, you know, friction and, and disillusion. Uh, but I have to tell you, Cass, there wasn't a day that went by in those eight years that I was involved that I didn't have doubts about what I was involved in. They got quieter over time because I felt more empowered. It wasn't so much the disillusion of what was happening internally, although that was a part of it. For me, uh, you know, at 19 years old, right in the middle of that time, uh, I met a girl who was not a part of the movement, and we fell in love. And we got married at 19. We had our first son. At uh, 21, we had our second son. And that family unit was the first thing to challenge my sense of identity, community, and purpose that I had found. Because I had to, you know, ask myself, they couldn't coexist. You know, was I a hate monger or a father and a husband? And was my community the one that I had surrounded myself to boost my ego? Or was it the one that I had physically given life to? And my purpose shifted. So that was the first kind of major shift. There were always little nudges along the way. Every person that I met challenged me, even though I, I wasn't visibly you know, showing that it was affecting me. But it, hate is tiring. Over time, I started to meet people that didn't fit the view of what I held of them, right? You know, people of color, people who were gay, people who were Jewish. Suddenly, as I started to meet them and humanize them, I actually opened a record store to sell white power music. And that's when I started to meet these people, uh, funny enough, um, because I was selling other music. I was selling hip hop and punk rock and, and metal and, and you know, black metal like that. And it was a, you know, kind of an underground store where people were coming to buy things that they couldn't buy at Best Buy when CDs first came out. 
But I was also selling white power music, and people knew that. I mean, people knew who I was. So you talk about like anonymity. There, I, I had no. I didn't. I wasn't interested in that. I was very vocal. I was on CNN when I was on, you know, seventeen years old, talking about race war and things like that. I wasn't interested in hiding. So when I opened the store, people came in to challenge me, knowing who I was. As they did that, without like being aggressive, without attacking me, you know, they could have easily broken my windows or burned my shop down if they wanted to. They didn't. They challenged me with compassion. And that allowed me to humanize them instead of demonizing them. And it was the first time in my life that I ever had a meaningful interaction with the people I thought I hated. It wasn't their responsibility. I still don't think it was their responsibility. They shouldn't have done that. They were, you know, potentially putting their lives in danger or putting themselves in a situation that wasn't comfortable for them. They didn't have to do that, but I'm glad they did because they saved my life. And over and over, that's what I've seen happen with other people that I've worked with. So if we talk about, is there a commonality? I, I think that is the commonality. Uncertainty becomes more certain, you know, and hatred is born of our ignorance. And if we remove that fear and that isolation, we start to challenge our opinions of how we see the world. And so that undoubtedly led you also to your activity after getting out of the movement. And so you're currently involved in the Free Radicals Project. Can you tell a little bit more about the project? Who are your collaborators and what do you exactly do? Well, the Free Radicals Project is a nonprofit organization that I founded essentially to help people disengage or find support to leave extremist movements because I recognize how hard it is. If it wasn't for somebody giving me a chance, you know, 25 years ago, you know, I'd probably be dead in prison or me on TV marching in Charlottesville because the option would have been to go deeper. Mm -hmm. So I want to kind of want to be that person that I wish would have come up to me in that alley when I was 14 years old instead of that skinhead. Had a, a football team come up to me or a group of ballerinas, you know, <laughs> all I care. I could have been the greatest footballer or the greatest ballet dancer on earth. That never happened. So I try to be that for people because I know that every single person in these movements at some point goes through a sense of uncertainty and confusion about what they believe in. And I want to be there just to listen, not to tell them that they're wrong, but to show them that there is another way and that it really helps change their perspective of how they feel. And do you work with people in all types of extremist groups or exclusively extreme right? I mostly work with folks in extreme right or families of people who are trying to help people that they love in extreme because that's my background. Uh, but I have also worked with, uh, you know, former members of the Islamic State. I've worked with other types of extremists, everything from, you know, Sikh nationalists to, you know, neo-Nazis in Chile. Uh, so it's it's been a kind of a wild ride. But, you know, I, I really think that the rules kind of apply across the board. It's really just about repairing human resilience. And obviously, we live in a different time in many ways than when you both got in the movement and out of the movement with having someone in the White House, President Donald Trump, who has shifted the boundaries about acceptability and overt support of white supremacy and even white nationalism. How has the Trump presidency affected your work? Wow. Where do I begin? Well, first of all, I never thought 30 years ago when I was a part of the movement ever in my lifetime that I would see a day when a president would say many of the same things that I would have said as a, you know, as a white supremacist skinhead. So in that regard, I really do believe he has emboldened something that has existed for a very, very long time. Uh, something that may, you know, been out of sight, out of mind for a little while, but certainly never went away. You know, I kind of liken it to the fact that Trump didn't start the fire. He just kicked over the 
the bucket of gasoline and ignited all the, the sparks that already existed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, certainly he's put, you know, white supremacy into focus for good or for bad. And I think for bad, it's emboldened people to become more violent, uh, to organize. And, and for good, it's, it's given us an opportunity to learn and to understand how this happens, why it happens and what we need to do to fix it. Yeah, you know, I never really thought I would have seen that. And I can tell you, you know, people in the movement are so excited, so happy. They really feel like their guy, even if they don't support him personally, they feel like their ideas are in the White House, in the open uh, for maybe the first time in their lives. And does that apply both to the broader far-right movement? Does it also apply to neo-Nazi groups, skinhead groups, more aggressive outside of the system groups? Yeah, I mean, I think so, because I think that those groups really thrive when there is, you know, uncertainty, right? Extremism in general thrives when uncertainty exists, when, you know, like Hoffer said, the new poor are the most easily radicalized because they've lost something of great value. So, you know, I think I think it affects everybody in that ecosystem from the accelerationists who are praying for the, you know, the world to burn uh, and are happy to do anything to to help accelerate that. And so the more you know traditional types from from my day when I was involved, who see this as kind of like a a hall pass, been a four year hall pass right. for what they believe. I really hope it's it's not going to get worse, but I suspect that you know leading up to November and election day and maybe even January and transition of power, hopefully that happens, uh, we're going to see things get worse because I don't think that they're going to let go of of what they have right now so easily. This is something that's debated at the moment a lot, and some people even write books about Trump is not going to leave. I personally am a little bit more skeptical about that, but when you speak about they, they are not going to let that leave. Like, who are who are they? I mean, the Trump camp is a very different camp than, for example, Ku Klux Klan groups or V-Dare, more white supremacist and white nationalist, let alone neo-Nazi groups. I mean, do, do you think that there will be violence from neo-Nazi groups or more from type militia type groups? I think you're going to see this broad spectrum of, you know, those more traditional types to the average person who's going to be afraid and, and have to choose a side or feel like they have to choose a side. Because what happens is the reality is the world is not going to implode. But the picture that they're going to paint before that happens is that the world is coming to an end. Everything that they hold dear is going to be destroyed should that, should power transition have to happen. That everything, you know, what little they still have that they control is going to be taken away by whoever comes next. What I worry about is, you know, in this world of technology and the internet, people are influenced by propaganda much more easily than if they just had four channels to watch or, you know, a newspaper to read. I think we're, we're, just surrounded by it and beat down by propaganda or marketing, whatever you want to call it, 24 hours a day now. And I worry about you know the conspiracy theories, the end of times scenarios that people are going to paint that could kind of make art imitate life, so to speak. And finally, what do you believe is the main misperception about both entering and exiting the far right? I think the biggest misperception is that people are attracted to the ideology instead of the fact that they're searching for a sense of a clear understanding of who they are, where they belong, and and how do they get seen. So I think it's not the ideology that is that is attractive. 
on the way out, I also think that people think that they can debate their way out of changing somebody's mind. I think that that's never in my experience have I seen that happen in this type of ideological scenario. It has to be felt. Change has to come from inside. And, and I think that argument and debate has its merit. But I think if you're arguing with somebody who's using illogical facts, there's no way to win. Well, this was fa fascinating. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Christian. My pleasure, and I hope we get to speak again, Cass. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. If you want to know more about Christian Picciolini and his work, you can go to his website, www.christianpicciolini.com, or follow him on Twitter, at cpicciolini. To support his organization, Free Radicals, go to www.freeradicals.org, .org, not .com. And if you enjoyed this show, please follow and rate this podcast on your platform of choice. Till the next time.